0: Most of us cannot imagine waking up uh, tomorrow morning with a PhD from an Ivy League institution uh, only to be named very shortly thereafter as uh, a senior officer in a Fortune 500 organization. And not long after that, within a few years, becoming president and a number four ranking uh, officer of this organization. With that, And with youth, and with no matter what age you may be, with it comes incredible perks, incredible benefits. But with it also comes things that may not be fully seen or understood. Watch this video with me, give you a little bit more insight. Dean Paisley is what you'd expect a 25-year veteran of the FBI to be. He's a very honest, straight shooter, and he knows Mark Whitaker very well. He was the FBI supervisor in the ADM Mark Whitaker price-fixing case, and he says this question mark should not be on this title. He says that he has no question that Mark Whitaker is a national hero. But in the early nineteen nineties, Mark Whitaker was keeping a nine million dollar secret from Dean Paisley, and it was a secret he would regret.
1: My biggest regret would be my biggest regret would be that I didn't tell the FBI about the money issue during the time that I was working with the FBI.
0: But those in the FBI who were working with Mark Whitaker to build a case against ADM were shocked when their own informant was sent to prison for nine years. It was the first time in history that anybody had been a a cooperative witness for the FBI and was prosecuted in the same case that they were assisting. Uh, It doesn't make sense. Dean Paisley worked for the FBI for 25 years. He was the FBI supervisor during the Mark Whitaker ADM case. He is not a fan of the movie The Informant. I know from experience going through that uh, that uh, it wasn't a comedy. It was anything but a comedy. Would you be willing to wear a wire? We need your help. And the 25 year FBI veteran is also not laughing at the treatment that Mark Whitaker has received. I always felt that he didn't get a fair shake, uh, either from the FBI or the uh, uh, system he didn 't deserve all that happened to him, Dean Paisley is now working to get a presidential pardon for Mark Whitaker, who he says is a national hero. He helped every citizen in this world that ever bought any product from ADM had he not stolen that nine million. Uh, he would have been a national hero at the highest levels, really. Dean Paisley says he and the other main FBI officers who worked this case are now pressing for a full presidential pardon for Mark Whitaker. And at least one prosecutor who helped send Whitaker to prison is also helping in their effort.
1: Boy, what an opportunity and so honored and, and humbled to be here and share with you today and just appreciate the opportunity to to share and uh, Even though I work for a California company and also heavily engaged in a ministry that's located in Chattanooga, Tennessee, I've really been privileged for the last couple of years to be five or six days a month in the Florence area. And I tell you, it's just uh, what a wonderful community. And uh, we just appreciate the opportunity to to spend. We had lunch actually yesterday with Zachary Lux and and Kelly Lux yesterday and had a chance to, to see them. And I see them in the audience and Appreciate them, and just uh, Florence, just a wonderful community, and just glad to glad to be here for a few for a few days here. Want to share with you this morning um, a story, something that's happened. Share with you what's happened in my life in the last twenty years, and and I think it uh, I think it'd be interesting to you, and appreciate the opportunity to share it with you. And I'd like to start off with this. Just imagine when you go back to work on Monday. Just imagine when you go back that you have a tape recorder attached to your body with an athletic band that you have another tape recorder in a briefcase and that you have a third tape recorder in a notebook, three different tape recorders, and that you're going to be taping your coworkers, your supervisors, and in some cases, your friends. Now imagine doing that for three years, every day for three years. That's what I did do in the early '90s. I was a lot younger man. Then I was in my early thirties. I'm 57 years old now. But in my early 30s, uh, I had a chance to... Uh, I wore a wire every day. I met four FBI agents at 6 o'clock in the morning. They'd shave my chest. They'd hook microphones to my chest, four more microphones to my back. I was not allowed to take my jacket off for three years because under my shirt, it looked like a Christmas tree with all those microphones. And then they'd check the batteries of a tape recorder and a notebook, and they check the batteries of a tape recorder in a briefcase. And i taped my coworkers, my supervisors, and in some cases, my friends, every day... For three years, unbeknownst to them, it is a very interesting life, and I'd like to share that uh, journey with you, and what I've learned from it, and, and what's happened the last uh, 25 years since that since that point. The company I was wearing a wire against is no average company. Even though you don't know your their name, you probably have something when you have breakfast, lunch, or dinner today. Likely, something, an ingredient, a food ingredient in the food what you eat today, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, would be produced by this company. Archer Daniels Midland, commonly known as ADM, one of the largest food additive companies in the world. When I joined them in 1989, we were number 56 largest company on the Fortune 500, $70 billion in revenue, 56th on the Fortune 500, the 90th largest company in the world. Today, I think they're number 27th on the Fortune 500 with about $95 billion in revenue. And like I said, when you go to the grocery store, no matter if you put an oil juice or a beverage or a General Foods or General Mills or Kellogg's, likely some food that you put in your grocery cart has ingredients from ADM in it. The position I had when I joined them, I was 32 years old, it would have been 1989, and I was divisional president of the biotech division, which was the fastest growing division of the company, divisional president of that, and corporate vice president of the whole company. So out of the 30,000 employees, I was the fourth highest ranked executive. We had a CEO who was 75 years old, a president who was 69 years old, a vice chairman who was 42 years old and I was 32 years old, ranked number four in the company. And the perks uh, that, that come with that, for example, the seven top executives of the company each got their own corporate jet. So I was number four, so the first two employees I met when I joined the company, 1989, 25 years ago, age 32, the first two employees I met were my two pilots that was assigned to me for the Falcon 50 that was given to me for the job that I had there during the seven years I was there. And boy, was that the start of a downfall. I had my Britney Spears, my Justin Bieber, my Charlie Sheen moment all in one month. <laughs> Felt like I was Bon Jovi to have a Falcon 50, could fly anywhere in the world anytime I wanted to. These were, were planes we could fly internationally. We'd fly them into Hong Kong, fly them into Germany, fly them anywhere we wanted to. We'd have lunch in Scottsdale and dinner in Manhattan the same day. It was crazy. I felt like I was a rock star, I felt like I was arrived. And I can remember the startup bonus they gave me, uh, again, this is 25 years ago, it was a $500,000 startup bonus and I bought a 13,000 square foot house and had an eight car garage. And within a couple months, I filled that eight car garage with eight cars, a Ferrari, two BMWs, two Mercedeses, my Justin Bieber moment. <laughs> and like I said, it was uh, the life I, uh, I felt that I always wanted when I went to college to, to get this life. But one thing I would say is that people would drive by our home, we had security guards, lived behind gates, and people would drive by our home, age 32, my wife and I, she was a year younger than me, age 31, and they'd drive by our home and say, that man has everything, but I was an empty life. I had a void in my heart the size of Grand Canyon. I think about the seven years that I was at a corporate executive before that company and the seven years that I was with the company ADM, those 14 years, that I moved that, that corporate ladder so fast that no promotion, even though I thought the next promotion I'm going to be happy, no matter what promotion I got, no matter what set of stock options I got, and some of them were seven, million, 7 figure bonuses. My base salary when I started in 1989 was $350,000 a year base salary. But in a public company, most of your compensation is stock options and bonuses. And the seven years I was there was averaging $3 million a year, and that's 25 years ago. And it wasn't enough. I became, when you, I became so addicted to it, I'm so, I'm so obsessed with it, it was a greed addiction. And I kept thinking that the next promotion will make me peaceful and content and I'll be happy. But two weeks after the, the, the promotion I would receive, I'd say, what's next? What's next? If you're on that track that you think a promotion or a bonus or more money is going to fill that void in your heart, I can tell you, I was on it and it will never fill that void. I could have got to the level of Bill Gates and it would have never filled that void. So then you say, Mark, you're 32 years old. 1989, you're, you're number four in, in what, the 56th largest company in America. Your CEO's 75 years old. Your president's 69. There's even more room to move up. You're half their age. Why would you blow the whistle on your own company? Well, the reason why I blew the whistle on my own company, because I didn't my wife did my wife ginger and my wife ginger will actually be here today she's coming at the 11 o'clock her father uh, went into the hospital on friday night so she's at the hospital this morning with her father and she's coming to the next uh, to the next service to be here today but she's the one that blew the whistle she's the one and i by the way i've known Ginger almost my whole life i met ginger when she was in the seventh grade and i was in the eighth grade her mom took us to the junior high dance my mom brought us home from that junior high dance and then we went together all through high school and all the proms together. And we grew up in a little town called Marl, Ohio, about 45 minutes north of Cincinnati, a school called Little Miami, Little Miami High School. I don't know if you're familiar with this, near the Kings Island, Mason, Lebanon, that area, that's where Marl's located. Our families still live there today. And when we were growing up, we went to through High School. I was senior class president. She was treasurer of her class. She was a year behind me. I, I was, um, the, we were the homecoming king and queen. And, and at that time in my life, I had the right moral compass. I was thinking long-term. And I, but when I got addicted to greed, it was a whole, whole different track. So Ginger noticed those changes when I joined ADM. And we've been married 35 years as of, as of last month. And like I said, I've known her since she was 13 years old. And she noticed those changes in me. And one day on November 5th, 1992, Ginger said this. We were three years with the company then. I was 35 years old. She was 34. And boy, I was, those three years, it was nothing but work. Because the more I worked, the more bonuses I would get, the more stock options I would get, and the more compensation I would get. I did nothing but work. And I lost my balance. And she said, Mark, what's going on with your life? November 5th, 1992, we're sitting in the family room. She said, what's going on with your life? She said, we just adopted two young children, a five-year-old and seven-year-old. We had a, had a newborn Uh, We had three children all in in one year. We adopted a 5 year and seven-year-old. She was pregnant two months later. In 10 and a half months' time, we had three children from zero to three. And she said, you don't spend any time with the children. She said, you don't spend any time with me. All you do is you're addicted to this job, to this corporate jet, to this position, to this title. Anybody ask who you are, you throw out your card. Here I am. I'm Mark Whitaker, divisional president uh, of the 56th largest company in America. She said, you're obsessed with that job. And she said, the thing that bothered her the most was when I came home from work and we'd have dinner together as a family, I'd be right back on the phone, three, four, five hours a night. I'd be back on the phone by 7 p.m. until 11 p.m. or midnight. She said, even after you have dinner instead of with a family, you're working. She said, why would you be on the phone? She said, especially the last seven months, you're constantly on the phone after work. And I said, honey, I have to be on the phone at night because eight o'clock at night, our night, In Decatur, Illinois, where ADM was headquartered at is outside of Chicago. Eight o'clock in the evening our time is eight o'clock in the morning in Japan, in Korea, in Singapore, in Southeast Asia. They're 12 hours ahead of us. So for me to talk to them, I have to be on the phone with them at night. She said, you have to talk to them three or four hours a night, every night? And I said, I have to. And she said, why do you have to? I said, well, ADM assigned a mentor to me seven months ago. And this mentor showed me how to do price fixing. And in price fixing is where you get together with your competitors, and it's forming an international cartel, and you fix the prices of the ingredients that go in the foods you buy every day. She said, is that legal? That sounds illegal to me. I said, no, it's not legal, but I said, everybody does it. When they called me in and signed a mentor to me, they said, Mark, this is the way business is done. Everybody does it. And she said, well, how long they've been doing that? I said, for 14 years. She said, well, you've only been there three years. I said, well, they've only started teaching me in the last seven months. They didn't trust me enough yet until so I was with the company a while to start bringing me in to how to do the price fixing. She said, well, who pays for that theft? And I said, when people go to the grocery store, when they buy consumers, $50 worth of groceries, they pay an extra couple dollars because of those ingredients being price fixed, 2 or $3 out of 50. She said, you mean my grandma who's on social security, my aunt, my uncle, my brother, my mom, my dad are paying for this theft? mind, this is 1992, 22 years ago. I said, yeah, they're paying for that a couple dollars out of 50. She said, we're making millions. You're flying on a corporate jet. You have 13,000 square foot house and we're taking money from my grandma. She said, I can't live with this. She went back up in her room and prayed for about an hour. I was going to church during that time. So I want to I want to really emphasize that and people could ask me during that time are you a christian i said oh yeah i go to the methodist church in decatur illinois and i go every sunday and my parents forced me to go to church as a youngster and you know almost like going to church as a believer and a christian and that's what i thought back then but my wife was living it and she had a personal relationship with jesus christ and she went back in that room and prayed for an hour she came back down she was 34 years old a housewife that never worked one day at adm And she blew the whistle on the biggest white collar crime in US history. There's a museum at the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., and in that museum, there's a huge section of all the equipment I wore undercover for this case. It was a huge case. And it took a stay at home mom raising three young kids for God to guide her that she needed to blow the whistle on this case for that to happen. And she came down after praying and she said, Mark, you either turn yourself into the FBI or I will. And I've known her since she was 13. And I knew she meant it. And I said, Ginger, if I turn myself in, I could go to prison. We'll lose this house, this mansion, all these cars, security guards we'd have no longer. No more corporate jet. And, I, and more, most of all, I could be in prison. She said, if you go to prison, I'll stay with you. But she said, more importantly is, if the case is going on for 14 years, you're only involved in seven months. What a perfect opportunity to turn yourself in because you're new. And the crime. And it's been going on for 14 years. What a perfect opportunity to expose what's going on. And she said, I convince you won't go to prison at all. She said, You've got to turn yourself in. Within an hour from the time I told my wife, I was confessing in front of an FBI agent outside of Chicago, Illinois, for four hours. I don't know how many of you ever went to the FBI and told them you're stealing a billion dollars a year. <laughs> but I can tell you it's an interesting reaction. That phone was ringing off the hook. That phone reached the attorney general and reached the director of the FBI in Washington D.C. They had in front of them, with a stay-at-home mom and me, the largest price-fixing case in U.S. history—a theft of billion, $1 dollars billion a year for 14 years in a row. And I can remember Ginger and the FBI agent both asking me, both of them, "Why would you steal a billion dollars a year?" And I told them how I was taught and mentored, and, and but it, it made so much sense what they're saying. ADM was a $70 billion company. Why would you steal a billion dollars a year? Because with greed, and I learned it, it's never enough. If you're obsessed with greed, you're addicted with greed, it will never be enough. I was there. We were already 70 billion. We did not need to steal a billion. If we were 200 billion, we still would have done the price fixing because with greed, it's never enough. It happened with Enron, WorldCom, ADM, Tyco, right in order. The same kind of cases. So when I was done, my wife acted like my lawyer. And she said, we can go home now, right? It's all over. And the FBI agent said, it's not over. Your husband just confessed to a billion-dollar crime. One billion, not a million. He either goes to jail today or he starts wearing a wire tomorrow. And that's how I met four FBI agents, 6 o'clock in the morning, the next morning, every day for three years. My chest was shaved. Microphones were hooked to me. And we're a wire every day for three years. I don't have the normal resume of a white collar criminal. I went to Ohio State University for my bachelor's and master's full scholarship. Full scholarship to Cornell for a PhD in biochemistry in Ivy League University. Graduated at age 25, very young age. Average age is 32 for a PhD. And by the way, when I presented recently at the Lansing Michigan Prayer Breakfast, and I said, I don't have the normal resume of a white collar criminal. And I said, Ohio State, they said, you're wrong. That is the normal resume <laughs> of a white collar criminal. So I learned not to use this slide in Michigan, <laughs> but I figured it's okay around the Cincinnati area here in Florence. <laughs> Would like switch gear just for a minute. What life was like to work undercover as a civilian? Here I am, a biochemist, businessman. wasn't trained to be FBI. Next thing you know, I'm taped for three, wearing wires for three years. It was an interesting life. I'd build the company during the day as a loyal executive divisional president of the fastest growing division of the company. 4,000 employees out of 30,000 reported to me. But then at night, 6 o'clock to midnight, two nights a week, I'd turn over tapes, meet with the FBI, do the polygraph, do the lie detector test, and all the things you do as an informant, 6 o'clock to midnight, two nights a week. So I'd build the company during the day and tear it down at night. And it was a life at odds with itself. Build, tear down. Bear, build, tear down. And to do that five or six weeks, I think I could have handled it. But three years, I couldn't handle it. From age 35 to age 38. These meetings were all around the world. Like I said, we had seven of our own jets. So they'd be in Hong Kong and Singapore and Zurich and Tokyo and Hawaii. ADM didn't want to have many of these meetings in the United States because price fixing was really enforced in the United States. So they wanted to have them outside the country. All around the world. And following around the world with us, and there were two or three meetings a month, following around the world with us was this green lamp. Because the FBI knew they were going up against one of the biggest companies in the world. And they, wanted to, they knew it would be a long trial. This was a seven week trial. This trial was like the OJ trial in the mid 90s. It dominated the news. It was front page of, of Wall Street Journal every day for seven weeks in a row. It dominated the news. And they knew they were going up against one of the biggest companies. So what they did is the green lamp made the video feed. That's where the video camera was. I made all the audio with the tape recorders attached to me. And in my briefcase and my notebook, but the green lamp was the video camera. And let me tell you something, that green lamp was at two or three meetings a month for three years. That green lamp was at the Shangri-La, a thousand dollar night hotel in Singapore. That green lamp was the Mandarin hotel in Hong Kong where Snowden was hiding out. That green lamp was in the Four Seasons Hotel in Chicago. And the good thing that 11 guys that were stealing a billion dollars each in the, in the international cartel were all men. Because I'm convinced if there was a woman among us, A woman would have said, you know what? That green lamp was with us last week in Singapore. Today it's in Hong Kong and it's following us around the world. But one thing I learned was this, and I learned it well over those three years. Greed blinds you. That green lamp was two or three feet from where you're sitting. Every room, every country, no matter where they were at for three years. And they never saw it until trial when they were watching themselves. On trial, where 60 people totally were convicted. Four people alone at ADM went to prison for this case, but 60 people in these 11 different companies were convicted. During a Price 60 meeting in in uh, Irvine Marriott in California, right near the Orange County Airport, it would have been 1993. I've been wearing a wire for a year then. I thought I was pretty good at that point. Started thinking to myself maybe I'm 0014 instead of 007 during that point. And during that meeting in Irvine Marriott, the the briefcase started clicking. The FBI 20 years ago didn't have the equipment they have today. It was that old reel-to-reel type recorder. And that tape got twisted. So I've got these guys around me, 10 of them. The green lamp's two feet from them. It's already been following them around for a year. My briefcase starts clicking. I open the briefcase and fix that tape, sitting as close as you are to each other, and not one person noticed it. I'm telling you, greed blinds you. I saw it for three years. three years after two years wearing a wire I was spent keep in mind I wore one for three but after two years I didn't know if I worked for ADM I didn't know if I worked for the FBI I was a keynote speaker two years ago at the Quantico FBI Academy I've done seven events for the FBI on how to work with informants and two years ago when I was a keynote speaker at the Quantico FBI Academy they informed me that they they do not allow anyone to wear a wire longer than a year because they saw what happened to me for wearing one for three the meltdown that I went through and the mental anguish that I went through for wearing for three. So they actually have a guideline on the books. That informants cannot wear wire longer than a year. Because of the experience they have with me. For wearing one for three. After wearing for one for two. And there's a very accurate depiction of this. What I'm ready to describe. On a Discovery Channel documentary. It came out in 2010. With the four FBI agents. Ginger and I. All the real people involved. That's on Discovery Channel. That's on my website. markwhitaker.com. And in this, they had this scene I'm about ready to describe was so important what happened, they had actors reenact this scene on Discovery Channel. What happened was I was out on my driveway at three in the morning with a gas leaf blower, shirt and tie on, thunder, lightning, rain, with a gas leaf blower blowing my driveway. I couldn't imagine why the neighbors weren't doing the same. I was gone. I was spent. I wore a wire for two years at that point. Ginger heard that from the bedroom window. She comes out with an umbrella over her head. She says, Mark, come back to the house. Come back to the family. And they show this on Discovery Channel. And they mention this too. And she said, most importantly, you need God in your life. And I said, who needs God? They just announced in Fortune Magazine that I'm going to be the next president of ADM. When our 69-year-old president retires, I'm going from number four to number two, right under the CEO. Said, it's already announced two months ago. She said, Mark, I, knows it, I know it's announced in Fortune Magazine. The thing is... They don't know you're the informant. She said, you've got to be delusional. Delusional. If you think you're going to be the next president of the company where you're bringing down the CEO, the vice chairman, the president, board of directors are going to be implicated. They've all worked there for 30 plus years. They support each other. She said, they're going to hate you and you're going to be fired as being a whistleblower. And I thought you always knew that. She walked back in the house and I started thinking, she's right. I am going to lose that position. I had that position seven years. I was obsessed with that position and the compensation that comes with it. I couldn't imagine life without it. But I knew she was right. So I started thinking, well, they'll give me in the 90s, this would have been 1994 at that point when I was out on the driveway. And I said, in the 90s, all the top executives, when they get fired, they get golden parachutes and make millions of dollars and, and walk away with a, a multi million dollar severance. It was common, it was in the newspapers every day New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Then I started thinking, I'm taping these guys. I'm going to be a witness against them in trial. They're not going to give me a severance package. They're going to hate me. So I decided, I've just announced to be the next president. The accountants are scared to death of me. I'm going from number four to number two. I'll write my own severance. I looked at what I made, bonuses, stock options, base salary. It was about $3 million a year for those seven years. I thought it'd take me about three years to get back on my feet. Because being a whistleblower, it'd be easier to get a job as a felon than a whistleblower in corporate America, especially in the 90s. So I knew it was going to be tough to get another job, being a whistleblower. So I thought I'd write my own severance to bridge that until I got a similar job. So I wrote five different checks when I went back to work. Nine million dollars. Accountants were scared to death of me. The day that ADM learned I was the informant, the day they learned I was the mole wearing a wire against them, they contacted the FBI and they contacted the media and said, Mark Whitaker's no white knight informant. He stole nine million dollars from us. They made the decision if I put them in flames on price fixing, they were going to put me in flames for fraud. They went to prison for price fixing, and I went to prison for that fraud. We basically end up telling on each other when the case was all over with. The amazing thing is the four FBI agents came to my house after they learned I stole $9 million the very time I was working with them, and they said this they said, Mark, they had ginger also in the room. They said, we're going to do everything we can to support you. Everything we can do to support you. And they said, we'll try to get a plea deal for you. We know you've been cracking under the pressure. So we'll try to get a plea deal. Plea agreement for you. They went to the prosecutor, the U.S. attorney in Chicago, and told him, along with the lawyer, that they helped me find. Together, they went and told this U.S. attorney, the prosecutor said, Mark Whitaker is the highest level executive ever to turn whistleblower in U.S. history. If we prosecute him... No whistleblowers have come forward out of, white, out of large corporations. So it would, it would hinder future cases. Then they told the, uh, the prosecutor, they said this, the FBI agents did. Mark Whitaker stole $9 million at a time that his mental stability was at his worst. At a time that he was blowing driveways off with gas leaf blower at 3 in the morning. And said because he was under pressure, wearing a wire. And said, and then he told him that FBI agents get, have to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist every three months help them deal with a double life mark being a civilian they said that we never gave him any kind of mental health counseling at all and he wore a wire for three years untrained the u.s attorney in chicago agreed he said you're right mark Whitaker did us a lot more good than he did wrong he said i will agree to a plea agreement of six months six months in a prison camp with no fence because we have to give him some punishment my lawyer called me in his office again Ginger by my side as always he said, Mark, a deal of a lifetime, six months in federal prison, no fence. white collar camp, your home. I took that plea deal, threw it in a trash can, said I would never accept a plea deal, would never accept going to prison even for six months. Hired a whole group of lawyers. I fired that lawyer, hired a whole group of lawyers the next day, trying to build the OJ team, dream team, fought that case for two years and got a 10 year sentence two years later. And had a six-month deal right there in front of me. I became my own worst enemy every step of the way when I was trying to make decisions myself and not relying on God at all—total train wreck. My wife's got a lot of interviews, also on markwhitaker.com. She's done multiple interviews and still does. And one of the common things she says is, they tell her, they said, they asked her, she said, Ginger, the divorce rate's 99% for the incarcerated. Why would you stay on this train wreck when all this was going on? And, and 99% of the other wives don't. And Ginger said her faith would never allow it. Divorce was never an option. Her faith would never allow it. But she said murder was an option. And she considered it twice. <laughs> and I can tell you one of those times when I took a six-month deal and threw it in a trash can. Rightfully so. Sometimes she tells me it's still an option. <laughs> so I went... From a corporate jet, fly anywhere in the world, anytime I wanted to for seven years. Seven-figure compensation for seven years to $20 a month. 8.8 year, eight years, eight months in prison. There's no parole in the federal system. Parole was taken out years ago. So you get 15% off good be, behavior. So I had to do an eight and a half year sentence on a 10 year, uh, eight and a half years in prison on a 10 year sentence. When I got that 15%, which is the maximum you could get off on good behavior. I went to prison just like Chuck Colson, Michael Milken, Martha Stewart, on TV. I mean, they showed me handcuffed on TV, on the news, and it was an interesting experience and definitely one I don't recommend to anybody. Now, what I've discussed so far is what the movie was about, and it's where the movie ended. Uh, That's Ginger and I with my identical twin, Matt Damon. I think I'm the one on the right, by the way, if you can't tell. And that's what the movie was about. But what I want to talk about today, and want to emphasize... Hollywood, that's all they were interested in. It's the crime drama. What I wanna talk about the rest of the day is what's happened since then. Did life end in 1998 when I was age 41, when I went to prison? I thought it was ending, but did it end? And what happened since then? What's happened the past 16 years is what I wanna talk about today. The rest of the story. Uh, The faith journey of our family has been published in a book called Against All Odds, which is really mostly about my wife. And how she held things together during very turbulent, some very turbulent times. When I had a 10-year sentence and known I could have had a six-month sentence two years later, I pulled my car in one of those garages and tried to kill myself. I gave up all hope. Just think about it. I wouldn't take a six-month sentence because I felt like I couldn't do six months in prison. Now I had to do eight years and eight months. I couldn't even comprehend it. I couldn't process it. I couldn't put my hands around it. So I pulled my car in a garage and tried to kill myself. I was hospitalized for a month, treated for post-traumatic stress disorder, treated for bipolar disorder for a month. After wearing wire for three years, it was a very traumatic experience. This man named Ian Howes read about me in the newspaper. He read about everything I just described this last 20 minutes. He read about where I tried to take my own life. How I was an informant, six-month deal, threw it in a trash can, all the things I talked about. He read about it, and he showed up at my house. Didn't know him, stranger to me. He said, hello, Mark, uh, I'm Ian Owls, and said, I'm a CFO of a pharmaceutical company, so I can relate to you being in the biotech industry. And he said, I just want to let you know, prison's going to be the beginning of your life, and you're going to find your true purpose in life while you're in prison. He was with this group called Christian Businessmen Connection, CBMC. I had never heard about it at that point in my life. I ran into the kitchen when he told me that in the porch and told Ginger. I said, Ginger was in the kitchen. I said, Ginger, there's somebody on the porch that's crazier than I am. <laughs> she said, why, what's going on? She, I said, he said, I'm going to find my true purpose in life when I'm in prison and I'm going to have peace and contentment like, like I've never had before. And she started crying. And she said, thank God. That's what I've been praying for for a long time. She said, he's not crazy. And you need to listen to him. This is fall of 1997. September of 19, 1997, almost 17 years ago. I went back on that porch. He told me he has a study called Operation Timothy. It's an introduction to the Bible. And that he normally spends about an hour a week with somebody for a couple of years. Mentoring and discipling them. ...with this Operation Timothy. But he said, with me leaving for a decade and seven months... ...he needs more time with me. He spent five or six hours a week with me for seven months. And it's a man with five children... ...all school-age and younger. CFO of a pharmaceutical company. I know he had other things he could do with his time. And he invested five or six hours a week... ...with me. Going through Operation Timothy... ...which was really an introduction to the Bible. And I told him when we were going through the, the Gospels... ...for example, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. And we'd spend hours on that. And I said, Ian... I think my sins are too big for God to forgive me. Look what I've done to my family. I'm going to prison for a decade. I had full immunity for wearing a wire. Then I stole $9 million, and then they gave me a six-month deal, and I threw that in a trash can. I said, I think God won't forgive me. And he'd show me in Scripture and spend hours, no matter what your sins are, Mark, I don't care if it's $9 million, $900 million, $9 billion, God will forgive you, and he will give you a clean slate. And he proved that to me. Then I said, well, how, how would God forgive me? Why would he forgive me? And he'd show me in scripture and spend hours when he said, Mark, the way God forgives you is he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die horrific death on the cross for your sins, Mark. He took the punishment for your sins. That's how God will forgive you. And then he was resurrected and ascended back to heaven. And if you believe that in your heart, God will forgive you. And you will have eternal life with God. And I said, well, how do I I know God? How do I get to communicate with God? Being a scientist, I couldn't put my hands around it. And he said, Mark, the way you have a relationship with God, the bridge to God is Jesus. If you believe in Jesus and believe he died on a cross for your sins and ascended back to heaven after he was resurrected. And you have a personal relationship with him. You will have a relationship with God through Jesus. And I still couldn't put my hands around it. Ian left and I started looking at scientists. I'm a PhD from biochemistry in biochemistry from Cornell. I learned all the evolution and everything that God didn't exist all through school. So I couldn't erase that. So I started looking at scientists and reviewing scientists who believed in God and why they believed in God. And the first one I reviewed was Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein said that the Big Bang Theory was impossible. Only a God could create a man in the universe. He's a scientist that I greatly respected. Then Sir Isaac Newton, another scientist that I greatly respect. I read his memoir. Not only did he say only God could create man in the universe. He actually had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Great impact on me being a scientist. Because I always heard at Cornell, no scientist believed in God. But when I started researching, there's lots of scientists that believe in God. And lots of respectable ones. Some of them with the highest IQs have been reported. That had a big impact on me. It's the same time I was going through Bible study with Ian House. Then shortly after I entered prison, I was going through all this. Shortly after I entered prison, this man showed up. His name is Chuck Colson. I never knew of Chuck Colson. Never heard of him at this point. This would have been early 1998. And he said, Mark, I was reading about you in the Washington Post. And he said, he talked about how he went to Brown University and Ivy League University, had a law degree. And he said, Mark, you went to Cornell, got a Ph.D., He became top of the game, became White House counsel under President Nixon. uh, Chuck Colson did. He said, Mark, you became a top leader in one of the largest companies in the world. And we both ended up earning $20 a month and both ended up in federal prison. (laughs) He went to prison in the 70s. This would have been 1998 for me. And he said, Mark, God led me here because your story impacts me because I see a lot of myself in you, Mark. And he mentored me through nine years of prison. And he mentored me for the first five and a half, six years after I got out in 2008. So almost 15 years total until he passed in 2012. In April 2012, he passed at age 80. And he was like a father to me and a tremendous impact on me. Where Ian Howes planted the seed, Chuck Colson continued to, continued to nurture nurture that seed. And in June of 98... My third month in prison, even though I'd went to church almost my whole life. My parents forced me to as a youngster. I went to church with Ginger and the kids because I thought it was the right thing to do. Like I said, people could ask me back then if you're a Christian. Oh, yeah, yeah, I go to church. But at age 41, three months in prison, I had eight and a half years yet to go. First time in my life I got on my knees and surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. First time. I became a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ at age 41, even though I went to church... Most of my life. And I still at that point. When I turned my life over to Christ. I prayed to God. I said God. Chuck and Ian are saying. I'll find my true purpose. And you help me find my purpose in life. And you help me. Have peace, Because I'm not feeling it yet. I'm only three months in prison. I don't know how I can do. Eight and a half more years. I don't know how my family can survive this. I don't even know if my family will be there. When I get out. It's a 99% divorce rate. For the incarcerated. So I may not have a family. When I got out. I thought. But I said, please guide me, God. And please show me what my purpose is. September 1998, I woke up. God showed me. I was reading scripture every day, having quiet time. And God led me, said, Mark, just like Ian Howes planted the seed for you with Operation Timothy. You have the Operation Timothy books and your Bibles with you. You should do that for others in prison. You have 24 hours a day free time for nine years. (laughs) I took 61 people through Operation Timothy in prison, 61. In prison, I look at my 57 years of life, the most productive nine years of my entire life were nine years in federal prison. I was in prison when I was addicted to greed at ADM with the jets and the planes and the 13,000 square foot houses and the cars. That was prison. I became a free man when I went to prison. And for the first time in my life, I had peace and contentment like I never felt before. And I said, God, I know you're going to take care of this. And this Ivy League education wasn't to be a CEO of ADM. This Ivy League education was to help other people and serve other people. And for the first time in my life, I found myself serving somebody else besides myself. Servant leadership instead of selfish leadership. I found my purpose. And that was to use my education to help other people. I helped hundreds of guys get their GEDs, learn how to read, learn how to write. A couple years ago, my wife and I went to a graduation where someone that we know that was in prison with graduated number one in his class with a bachelor's degree in marketing. That man dropped out of school, high school when he was in eighth grade out of junior high. I helped him get his GED in prison, took him through Operation Timothy where he accepted Christ in his life Helped him get a two-year degree in prison through correspondence. And he got out and was married and uh, two kids and number one in his class in marketing. And Jinder and I were standing up there like his mom and dad. And I will tell you this. I learned what it was all about. There was no promotion, no seven-figure set of stock options, no corporate jet that ever met as much to see that. To see somebody else improve their life and God have you Have a little part in that. The most rewarding years of my life were nine years in prison, where I found my purpose. There's people come out of prison either better or bitter. The only difference between those two words is the letter E, E having eternal value, and the letter I, being for selfishness, all about me. And we, as a family, Ginger and I and our three children, we got better, not bitter. And it's because of God in our life. And I realize you aren't going to be wearing a wire. You're not going to be working for the FBI. You're not going to be going to prison on a price fixing case or a fraud. But you are going to be going through this. All of you, if you haven't yet, every one of you are going to go through adversities in your life. It'll be different than the adversity that I just described. But you're all going to go through adversities. And you're all going to have that option. Are you going to get better or are you going to get better? And I'm telling you right here from experience, three years undercover, nine years in federal prison with God in your life, with any adversity you're hit with, you can get better because of God. God pardoned me. He redeemed me and he forgave me June 4th, 1998, 16 years ago. And then he touched the hearts of society to give me a second chance and do the same. I was at three different prisons when I was in federal prison in nine years. If you Google Forbes and federal prison, they rank prisons just like they do the universities. And they have the top ranked as Pensacola, Florida uh, Navy base, which is eventually where I got to. So you can apply with good behavior, apply to get to a better place in prison. And eventually I reached uh, Pensacola, Florida, which was the number one ranked on the Forbes prison list. (laughs) Cornell, the university list, and then softly field Pensacola for the prison list. I went three different states. My wife and children moved each of those states almost walking distance from those three prisons. And the visiting hours are 20 hours a weekend. My wife and children visited 20 hours a weekend for nine years. In the book Against All Odds, they added from prison records the number of days that my wife and children spent eight hours a day sitting in prison visiting rooms. And it added up to three years and eight months that my wife and children spent eight hours a day in a prison visiting room. My family went to prison with me. Our youngest was six when I went when I started wearing a wire. He was twelve when I went to prison. He was twenty (sighs) one. And a junior in college when I got out of prison. The fact they ever kept loving me and stayed with me is a miracle of God. After what I put them through. That's my family today. My wife and I. I mentioned she's at the hospital with her father. Now she's at the, coming to the eleven fifteen service today. And our family, not just survived, we thrived. That's our three children and our daughter-in-law. Our youngest one has been married for about a year now. So that's our family of four. Three children and a daughter-in-law. And God blessed us that we stay together. If you go to prison, it's a 78% divorce rate. If you go to prison. If you stay five years and longer in prison, it's a 99% divorce rate. 99%. And we've been married 35 years as of last month. And only because of God. Only because of God. Then God touched the hearts of the companies we were stealing from. Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Kraft, Kellogg's, the companies you buy your food and beverages, oil juices, soups, so on. It's difficult to buy a food. They don't have something from 80 a minute. Those companies were reimbursed hundreds of millions of dollars. Coca-Cola alone received a $400 million settlement back, $400 million. Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati, $110 million. Tyson Foods, multiple companies received hundreds of millions of dollars back for that price-fixing theft that was going on for 14 years. My wife, Ginger, was about ready to move back at home with our kids, back with her family, because we were running out of money. I had a $9 million fine. I had millions of dollars in legal fees. If I would have taken the six-month deal, my family would have been fined. But the fact I didn't, I had to sell the house and cars to pay more legal fees. So we lost everything we had because of me fighting that case. And have to hire as many lawyers that I did over that extended period of time. So she was running out of money and was going to move back home with her parents. She got a call in August of 98. I turned my life over to Christ in June of 98, two months earlier. And I said, God, protect my family, shelter them. I'm praying daily protect my family. She got a call from a law firm named Dick Stein and Shapiro, a lawyer named Ken Adams. It's in the new book called Against All Odds about this. He called Ginger and he said, Ginger, if it wasn't for you, price fixing would still be going on like it was for 14 years. And a billion dollar theft would have been occurring for 14, would have continued. And if it wasn't for Mark wearing that wire, it would have never been exposed. And for that, we want to take care of your family for a decade. The family, the companies I stole from. Took care of my family for nine years in federal prison. They put Ginger back in college to be a teacher. She was teacher of the year in Pensacola in 2007. They put my daughter has a master's degree from Duke. Our youngest son has an MBA from Georgia Southern. They paid every expense we had for nine years and I was stealing from those people. If that's not an example of God touching hearts, I don't know what is. God touched the hearts of them who I stole from and they took care of my family for nine years. That's a miracle of God. The FBI agents and prosecutors had every reason to hate me. Stole $9 million when I worked for them. They gave me a six month deal. I threw it in a trash can. You saw in that news clip, there's half dozen news clips like that on my website. They become my biggest supporters, my biggest cheerleaders. And that couldn't have happened without God touching their hearts because they had every reason to be mad at me. My career, I thought I'd never be employable again. That's another reason why I tried to take my own life said, even with an Ivy League PhD, I'll be coming out of prison at age 49, won't be employable. So I tried to kill myself. Thought I wouldn't have a family with a 99% divorce rate, tried to kill myself. Thought I wouldn't be employable, tried to take my own life before I went to prison. I had four offers 24 hours after I got out of prison from biotech and pharmaceutical companies. I joined one of those companies 24 hours after I got out eight years ago. And by the way, for the young people, I want to tell you here you don't start off the head of finance if you steal $9 million. <laughs> but four years ago, I was promoted to COO and chief science officer, the number two in that company overall finances. God touched their hearts and gave me a second chance. Those are miracles of God for my family to stay with me, for them to still love me after everything I've done to them, for those companies I stole from to take care of my family. For me to be employed again after I got out eight years ago in 2006, no one can tell me that's not miracles of God. I don't live on faith anymore. I live on, I saw it. I saw it firsthand. I saw God work in our family's life. And God redeemed me and touched the hearts of society. And I've seen proof. And as a scientist, I've seen evidence. God does exist. I feel blessed and I head up our clinical trials. We have a product side and a research side and I head up our clinical trials for cancer research specialized in prostate cancer. I feel blessed to have that job the last eight years. Blessed. But it is no longer is anything like the job I felt like at ADM where that's my everything. The most important thing I do in my life is 2 Corinthians 5.20 makes clearly if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are an ambassador for Christ and you represent him. To me, there's nothing more important in life than going out and speaking and being a witness for Jesus Christ. Amen. I speak at seven or eight events a month all around the country. We've done four even overseas over the last 18 months. Seven or eight events a month. Did eight six events last calendar year and more events even this year. My wife does about a third of those events with me where she does the Q&A in these events. And these events are ranging from 2,000 people to 7,000 people. Convention center events. And I feel, and most of the people in these events don't know Jesus. They're outreaches. They don't know Jesus at all. And I don't find anything more important than being a witness for Jesus Christ. To plant the seed with other people the same way Ian Howes did for me. I feel that's the most important thing I do in my life. And my job is secondary to that. So I urge you, if you don't know Jesus, I urge you to know him and have a relationship with him. If you know Jesus, but you feel like you don't have a daily relationship or you talk to him daily i urge you to recommit and re-energize renew your relationship with him it's the most important decision we all will ever make is to have a personal relationship with jesus christ I read thousands of books in my life especially being be an ivy league phd hundreds of books just during my time at cornell the only book that changed my life was the bible the only book that was important in my life today at 57 years old i can tell you is the bible All the other books are meaningless. Look at what King Solomon. King Solomon had everything under the sun. But in the end, he passed on much wisdom. It was all meaningless. All meaningless except the relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the only place you're going to have true peace and contentment and find your purpose in life. I'd like to end this with prayer. And I'd like to say the prayer that I prayed in June of 98. And feel free to join me in in silence. If you'd like to renew or re-energize, recommit your life to Jesus, feel free to, feel free to join me in silence. Father, I am a sinner. And I need your forgiveness. And I want to repent, Father, but I need your guidance. I've made a train wreck of my life and I need your guidance every second of the day to keep me on track. Because I am a sinner. Father, I I know the only way to you is through your son, Jesus Christ, that you sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross, a horrific death for my sins. But he was resurrected and ascended back into heaven. And I know someday, Father, I will join you in heaven because of this relationship I have with Jesus Christ here on earth. Father, continue to guide me each, each and every day. And please continue to guide me to be the ambassador you want me to be and all about you and nothing about me. And I pray that in Jesus' name. God bless all of you. Thank you very much. And I appreciate the opportunity to be here today.